Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 67, and let the nations be glad. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we come now to your holy, precious word, we thank you, Lord, that scripture uh, teaches us and instructs us about the way in which we are to go. That is, your word is sufficient for our life, for our godliness. You have assigned a path in which you have called us to walk, and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received by Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at Psalm 67, I pray, Lord, that we would have as your people an appetite, a hunger, and a thirst for the righteousness of God in Christ alone, that is forming us, that is shaping us, and Lord, that fuels our engagement with the world around us. And so, Lord, as we consider uh, these great things about evangelism today, I pray especially that you would bring conviction to our hearts, that all around us are lost people, and you came, as you said in Luke 19.10, under on a mission to seek and to save the lost and in john 10 you say that you leave the 99 and you go and seek after that one lost sheep and so lord may we gain through the study of this passage this great chapter may we gain a not just a local perspective not just a neighbor perspective But Lord, may we get a global and a biblical and a theological and a practical understanding of how the nations are are to be made glad in and by a sufficient Savior, King, in Jesus. So we thank you, Lord, that your word is true and that every word of it is true, that every word of it is reliable, that every word of it in your word is trustworthy. It is enough for us and it always will be. And in the pages of Scripture, you tell us about our suffering, our sufficient, our King, our Lord over all and in all. So we thank you, Lord, for texts like the one we're going to look at today that encourage us, that remind us, that instruct us, and that call us out to the mission in which you've called us to. We thank you, Lord, for that and for this time that you've given to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 67. Psalm 67 says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you. Let all the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the nations of the earth fear him. 
This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. At the conclusion of Luke's gospel, he gives a version, Jesus does, of his great commission that highlights three great events that will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What he says in Luke 24, 46, and 47, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Two of these great events have already happened, the atoning death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the third of his great works was only then beginning and continues today, the proclaiming of forgiveness and repentance in his name to all the nations. In fact, while Jesus' death and resurrection are works that God performed by himself for his people, the spreading of the gospel is a work in which we participate. And for these reasons, Christians should realize that the gospel witness of the church is the single greatest work taking place during this time of the world's history. And knowing this, we should be zealous to play our part in this work as the Lord Jesus has called us to do. Jesus' spirit of evangelism was anticipated in the Old Testament, the joyful plea of Psalm 67. The unnamed author here, he prays for God's rich blessing to shine on his people so that they may spread his salvation throughout the end of the earth. He says this in Psalm 67, 1 through 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Psalm 67 is a missionary psalm which J.J. Stewart Perone describes as a joyful outpouring of a heart which longs to see the God and King of Israel acknowledge and worship as the God and King of the world. We might expect a missionary psalm to take up the language of Isaiah's prophets, but instead Psalm 67 begins with a priestly self-benediction when it says in verse 1, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. These words are taken, of course, from the benediction spoken by Israel's high, first high priest, Aaron, in Numbers 6, 24 and 26, when it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This benediction draws on the ancient idea of a shining face which conveys favor, acceptance, and love. It's the opposite of a scowling face that is angry or a face that is turned away in rejection. R.C. Sproul says, To be supremely blessed of God is to be able to look at Him face to face. Blessing is when the Lord makes His face shine upon you and lifts up the light of His countenance upon you. This biblical idea of blessing, it challenges the shallow aspirations of most believers today. When we speak of being blessed by God, can we usually mean and think of how he'll give us a good job that will live in a nice house, that will drive a nice sports car, that will have a nice good health. God does provide for the material needs of his people, but true blessing is so much greater than earthly things. The biblical idea of being blessed by God is to be graciously accepted into a personal relationship in which we know him and will one day look on the glory of his face in heaven. Matthew Henry said this, We need desire no more to make us happy than to have God's face shine upon us, to have God love us, and to let us know that he loves us. In fact, the word grace is sometimes explained in terms of an acronym, 
grace, G-R-A-C-E, which stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. This definition is supremely true and Christians exalt in the blessing of God's shining face. As sinners, we all deserve not blessing, but the curse of God's wrathful rejection. In fact, Deuteronomy 28, 16-20 outline the curses for those who transgress God's commandments. That's all of us as sinners. When it says, Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of all the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The only person in all of history who did not deserve to be cursed in this way is the one person who perfectly obeyed God's voice and fully observed and obeyed all the commandments of God. Only on Jesus could God look down from heaven with complete approval and acceptance. And God said of Jesus Christ in Matthew 17:5, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That is, on the basis of his Father's pleasure, with his perfection, Jesus was able to offer himself as a substitute and the sacrifice in the place of his people so that the blessing of God that he alone deserved might shine on people whose sins and curse he bore. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Therefore, when the psalmist prayed in Psalm 67, 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us, he was ultimately appealing for the saving grace that God would provide through Jesus Christ alone. God is merciful to believers because he showed no mercy to Christ on the cross. God blesses us because he cursed Jesus as he was bearing our sins. Instead of showing his face to Jesus, the father turned his face away so that his son cried in horror in Matthew 27, 46, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus then received in his spirit the full fury of the wrath of God for our transgressions, paying in full the penalty for our sins. And only in this way could God turn a shining face in acceptance of us sinners, having put our sins fully on the Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, it cannot be said that God's face shines in loving acceptance of everyone, regardless of whether they believe in Jesus and his gospel. The Bible makes it clear in Romans 3.23 and 6.23 that all have sinned and fallen under the curse of God. Only those who repentant through repentance and faith have received the sin-atoning sacrifice of Jesus may be blessed as the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 67.1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And let me be clear about something. We are living in a time and we are living in a day when what, I, what we just walked through is under attack. It's under assault like never before. We see this though in Romans 1 especially. Because what we want is we want a, we want a God in our own image, in our own, in our own way. That's what Romans one is talking about. That we worship ourselves rather than the Creator who is blessed forever, and that God will at 
God will at times, he will give us up to our own devices. He will give us over to the depravity of our hearts. Now, when and how that happens is up to God. It's ultimately up to him. But it involves, what it involves is the fact that if we reject God, if we reject Christ, at some point, God is going to agree with us and he is going to harden the heart of the non-repentant. And this is such an important point because even in that, God is just. And that in and of itself is a very controversial idea. But the problem is, is people think, you know what? I'm good to go. I'm good to go myself. I'm good as I am. I don't need the righteousness of God. And we are tempted to think this, especially in the West. In fact, if you go and look at the top Christian books that are regularly the top Christian books, and I say Christian books that way with air quotes, if you go and look at the top Christian podcasts, you're going to see preachers, you're going to see teachers, you're going to see authors, and they don't preach anything of the gospel at all. In fact, one of them, Joel Osteen, he's regularly among the most best-selling, quote-unquote, Christian gospel pastors in the world. His podcast is regularly in the top 10 on, on iTunes. And you know what? In an interview, even with Larry Brown, or Larry King, excuse me, years ago, on Larry King's show, he could not say, he waffled on the question that no pastor should about Jesus being the only way to God. And even Larry King had an issue with it. And John MacArthur was on around that same time. And John MacArthur very clearly spelled out about our sin and about our need, as we are talking about today, for the righteousness of God in Christ alone. And this is what Paul's point is in Romans 1 through 3. We have sinned in every single way. We have sinned in word. We have sinned in deed. We have sinned in every single sphere of our life. And what that means is we need the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But you can't understand the death and resurrection of Jesus until you understand your sin. And that's what makes it so tragic today when sin is de-emphasized or, or the, the death of Christ in our place and for our sin is minimized because it's suggested that that is just one theory among many others and we should preach a, a fuller understanding of the gospel. But there is only one way to be saved and that is through Christ alone. And the fact is, is that Christ did pay the penalty that we justly deserve in our place and for our sin. And he was buried and he rose again. And now having begun with the priestly plea for God blessing his people, the psalmist in Psalm 67 goes on to declare the purpose of God's blessing in our lives. What result does God intend for our blessing? And the psalmist answers in verse 2 of this psalm, that your way may be known on earth that your saving power among all nations. You see, God has revealed himself to his people so that through them he might further reveal himself throughout all the earth. This means that those who have escaped the curse of sin through Christ's sacrifice are called by God to share this salvation message with sinners in the world. 
And it's this calling to evangelism that was not always embraced by Israel, just as Christians today become so focused on this issue and that program or this culture war that they forget the great commission of Jesus to go and make disciples of the nations. Psalm 67, though, proves that Israel did possess this noble calling, and at least some of the faithful remembered it. The psalmist realized, we might say, that the Aaronic blessing granting God's favor to Israel was given so that the Abrahamic promise, a blessing for the world, might be fulfilled in Genesis 12, 3, which says, And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And when people receive salvation through the promise of Abraham, they shine with the glory of Aaron's blessing. And now not only does Psalm 67 teach that Israel's blessed so that as to serve the Gentile nation's salvation, but it also notes that the two primary ways in which believers spread the gospel. And first, the psalmist desires in verse 2 of this psalm that your way may be known on the earth. By God's way, the psalmist means God's manner and by extension, God's covenant of salvation through faith in the Savior whom he would send. David Dixon says this, The world is ignorant of true religion till God by his own instruments reveals it. And no way of religion will please God or profit men, save God's way only, wherein he will have men to walk in the course of faith and obedience. And so the calling of Christians is to reveal this way of salvation through our witness of the gospel to the world. In fact, God began revealing his way of salvation immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve when he clothed them with the skins of animals that had been sacrificed, as we see in Genesis 3.21. This sacramental action symbolized the atoning death of Christ and the righteousness that Christ imputes to those who believe. Adam and Eve passed this message to their children as suggested by the fact that their righteous son Abel brought a blood sacrifice when he came to meet with God, as we see in Genesis 4.4. This same gospel emphasis on atoning blood was declared by the Old Testament prophets and then by the apostles of the New Testament, showing that God's redeemed people are to declare what God has done through the Savior he has sent. Our message is summarized by John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And some readers might find it surprising that a psalm that centers on a priestly benediction would emphasize the preaching and the witnessing of the gospel. In fact, in addition to overseeing the sacrifices, the priests were preachers and teachers of the word of God. For instance, when Jerusalem was restored after the Babylonian exile, it was the priest Ezra and his fellow Levites who preached and taught the word of God to the people of God. Nehemiah 8.8 records that they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The New Testament corroborates this priestly ministry of gospel preaching. Paul said that he was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Romans 15, 16. It was in fulfilling the priestly calling to lead the people into God's presence that Paul described the apostles as ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, as we see in 2 Corinthians 5.20. 
This priestly calling of spreading the gospel was not restricted to the apostles any more than it is limited to ordained ministers today. Paul, Peter taught that believers, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, as we see in 1 Peter 2.9. Gospel proclamation is every Christian's calling, just as Jesus in his great commission called the whole church to evangelism. Are you playing your part today in this great work of evangelism, Christian? Have you prepared yourself to know how to present the gospel biblically? Are you praying that God will use you for the salvation of others? By Christ's death and resurrection, God has blessed us with the light of his shining face. And now we have received the same charge that Jesus gave his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, as Acts 1.8 says. The second way that God's people are to spread the gospel is simply by uh, the living testimony of our transformed lives. Psalm 67, 2 prays that by shining his light on his people, God would make his way known with his saving power among all the nations. John Stott offers a compelling application of this principle when he says this, Non-Christian people are watching us. We claim to know, to love, and to follow Jesus Christ. We say that he is our Savior, our Lord, and our friend. What difference does he make to these Christians, the world asks, certainly, where is their God? It may be said without fear of contradiction that the greatest hindrance to evangelism in the world today is a failure of the church to supply evidence in her own life and work of the saving power of God. The accuracy of this statement supplies an urgent reason for us to pray with the psalmist, for God to bless us and make his face shine upon us as we see in this psalm. Not that we may then monopolize his grace and bask in the sunshine of his favor, but that others may see in us his blessing and his beauty and be drawn to him through us. The point is, it's Christ in us, Christ at work in us, by his grace, through the means of the word, through our personal reading and studying of the word of God, as, as God is taking his truth and applying it more and more into our life, bringing conviction and encouragement and the help of his grace, but also corporately, as we hear the, the word of God preached by a biblically qualified man in our local church. God is using those things. He's using our personal study and reading of his word, meditating and memorizing of his word. But he's also using the preaching of his word in our lives, in our local churches. He's using even our fellowship or, or even our times of one-on-one -on -one encouragement of one another to help us so that as we go out, we will be grounded and shaped increasingly, not perfectly, increasingly in the likeness of Christ. And that's what makes that's what makes John Stott's point so important. Because, you know, I've been doing this 23 years now. Uh, I've been doing it not only in uh, through media but also in the local church. And one of the one of the I'll add to Scott's excellent statement. I I agree with it. But the number one hindrance to evangelism is apathy towards our own sin, towards our own indwelling sin. It's a failure to understand as Christians who we are in Christ, that we have been taken 
from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And you know what? The longer that that has gone by where you are forgiven of your sins, that's a great danger. Because we can forget that we are still in need of the grace of God. That's what makes Martin Luther's uh, statement on the 95 Thesis, the very first point, so important. Because he talks about how the Christian life is a life of repentance, ongoing repentance. And John Calvin says that, that the Christian life is repentance, repentance, and repentance. The Christian life, the Christian does not graduate from repentance. That is, from sorrow over their sin, agreeing with God that, yes, it is sin. Yes, you have transgressed the law of God. Yes, you have crossed the boundary. And that is why you're in need of the grace of God. And you're sorry for your sin and you turn away from it, but you don't just turn away from it to anybody. You turn away from your sin to Christ alone. And that is why, that is one of the reasons the lack of emphasis on personal responsibility, on personal accountability, on, on growing together with God's people, and even, even just what a godly character looks like. That's why we have problems with our evangelism today. And I'm not pushing back on Stott's words, but I am saying that one of the greatest hindrances to the church today is our own lack of seeing our own sin, our own indwelling remaining sin, and our failure to repent for that sin. And what Paul does in Romans 6.11, he says to Christians, to those who are in Christ, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. See, Many Christians today, they have such a low view of sin. They think, you know what? I'm good. I'm okay. But all around you are people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. When was the last time you asked somebody, one of your neighbors, one of your friends, one of your coworkers, what do you think of the gospel? Or even, who do you think of Christ? Do they know that you belong to Christ? Do you let your neighbors know when there's a situation? I'm, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Most people, they appreciate it. Guess what? They appreciate it when, you're, when you let them know, hey, I'm praying for you. And you let them know how. But it's not enough just to say you're praying for them. Are you praying that, that God would draw them to Christ? Are you, are you fighting against your own indwelling sin? Or have you just given up? It's a question. Because if the answer to the question is you've given up, then you need to, you need to do business with your Lord. But if the question is, you know what, you're afraid to share Christ with somebody, that's a totally different conversation. To that person, I would say, Think of the glories of Christ. Think of what Christ accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. And you just keep thinking about it. You keep thinking about Christ bled and died and rose in my place and for my sin. 
one day he's coming back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. That means my neighbor. If he's not saved, they, my neighbor's going to be judged and they're going to be sent to hell. And how unloving is it to let your neighbor go to hell without even telling them about Christ? You see, we, we all have work to do in this area of our lives. Every single one of us, even the most effective evangelists, has room to grow in this area. So we all have room to repent, including me. But it's a question. How are you doing? This is why we talk so much about reading and studying and meditating and memorizing the word because as you're going to go out, you're going to be asked questions. And are you going to be able to access God's word as you go? Now, the primary appeal of Psalm 67 occurs in its first two verses. The psalmist's fervent desire is then seen in the poetic construction of verses 3 through 5. And the psalmist pleads for the nations to be glad and sing for joy under God's gracious rule in verse 4 of this psalm. And this exclamation is bookended by a repeated call for the glory of God in verses 3 and verses 5. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. So this poetic repetition emphasizes the fervor with which the psalmist's heart had embraced the evangelistic appeal of the opening lines. In fact, the psalmist's zeal for spreading the gospel is excelled only by the fervent desire of Jesus Christ. John chapter 4 records how Jesus had to pass through Samaria, not for geographical reasons, but because he intended to bring the gospel to a sinful Samaritan woman. After the woman at the well believed in Christ and was saved, Jesus sent her home to spread the good news. And as he departed, some of Jesus' disciples returned from shopping for food and offered him something to eat. And Jesus' attention was so fixed on the woman's gospel mission that he refused the food. In John 4, 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, some people are so absorbed by the classical music that, that they think they would not even think about what Jesus was saying. They would not even think of eating while a sympathy, symphony, excuse me, a symphony was being played. Others are so fascinated with fishing that they will sit famished for hours on end watching the bobbing of the rod. And yet Jesus' heart is so absorbed with, with the evangelistic work of salvation. That's because just as his attention was fixed on the Samaritan woman as she bore the good news of the gospel, we can be sure that Jesus devoutly attends to the witness of his people today and accompanies our gospel labor with his priestly prayers in heaven. God's most effective servants have always shared Christ's passion for spreading the gospel. One of these great Christians was Henry Martin, a brilliant young scholar at Cambridge University in the early 1800s. Henry was converted under the preaching of Charles Simeon, who showed a fervent interest in mission and encouraged many bright young men to give their lives to preach in a foreign land. Martin was one of those who experienced God's grace and became exhorted with the twin issues of God's glory and man's need of salvation. And when friends objected that he was wasting his life, by going to a poor and a distant land, Martin responded with a passionate call to evangelism, saying, In the midst of dying souls who are thronging to hell, how cruel, how impious to let a brother perish for want of a warning. 
And arriving at his pioneer missionary work to India, Martin was heartbroken at the idolatry witnessed all around. And he wrote, my heart was ready to burst at the dreadful state to which the devil had, had brought my poor fellow creatures. Desiring above all to convey the gospel of Jesus in the people's native language, Martin applied his brilliant mind to translation. His labor was used by God to serve an evangelistic effort that would ultimately lead to millions of souls to Christ. And because of Henry Martin's passion for spreading the biblical message of salvation, his short life was remarkably useful for Christ. And his example challenges us to heed Psalm 67's passionate plea when it says in verses 3 and 5, Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Martin's heart was most burdened by the sacrilege of idolatry and the dishonoring of God's name through unbelief. And in response to Muslim blasphemies directed towards Christ, Martin exclaimed, saying this, I could not endure existence if Jesus were not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always thus dishonored. And together with Henry Martin in Psalm 67, John Stott identifies God's praise as the highest motive in evangelism. The greatest incentive in all evangelism is not the need of human beings, but the glory of God. Not that they shall receive salvation, but they shall give to God the honor that is due to his name. And it remains true, however, that those who honor God in faith are also filled with the resulting joy and spiritual blessing. And so Psalm 67, 4 exclaims, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. And so the psalmist emphasizes that those who come to know God's blessing rejoice for the equity with which the Lord judges and guides those who follow him. The idea is similar to that of Psalm 23, in which David rejoices in the blessed government of the good shepherd. Those who walk in God's way do not want, but lie down in green pastures and graze beside still waters. In verse 3 of Psalm 23, he says, He lead me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Those who submit to the rule and the guidance of God's word will likewise be blessed with a godly, fulfilled life that leads them to heaven. And now this depiction, it reminds us that the gospel is brought to us not only that we might be forgiven of our sins, but that we might then live a wholesome and godly life in obedience to the word of God. The joy that salvation brings includes not only our initial conversion to Christ, but also a subsequent life of rejoicing that comes from walking in God's ways under the guidance and authority of his word. And in this respect, Psalm 67's expression of joy over God's equity and guidance conforms precisely to the Apostle Paul's classic description of the word of God in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, which says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so the psalmist looks forward to the time when the nations will be glad, and they will sing for joy through faith in Christ. Charles Spurgeon notes that the nations can receive true prosperity only by submitting to the Lordship of Christ. When he says they may shift their modes of government from monarchies to republics and from republics to communes, but they will retain their wretchedness till they bow before the Lord of all. And for this reason, political action should never obscure the church's witness to Christ and its gospel in society. The same principle holds true for families. Only in a home where prayer and God's word reign in grace 
will there be true happiness through servant-hearted love. Above all, it is in the church that the way of Christ inspires joyful praise as men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation rejoice in knowing Christ and in living out his way of salvation. Now, this psalm, Psalm 67, it concludes not with a final plea, but with a statement of fact in verse 6 when it says, The earth has yielded its increase. And speaking of future events as an accomplished work, the psalmist is certain of God's blessing, his people and their level and their labor of spreading the gospel. God's salvation harvest is virtually an accomplished fact simply because it is God who is at work to infallibly achieve his gracious will. And in this way, Psalm 67 looks forward to the coming of Christ who not only promulgated the Great Commission for worldwide evangelism, but through his sovereign reign has already guaranteed the full harvest. Verse 6 says, God our God shall bless us. And since the Lord is a God of salvation, his grace is certain to gather a great host from all the nations to receive the blessing of his shining face. This is our confidence in spreading the gospel. Not confidence in our zeal or in our presentation skills or our persuasive passion. And certainly not reliance on worldly appeals or manipulations. But God's sovereign blessing on his harvest so that his saving power attends the preaching and the reading of the word of God. A harvest never rises from the ground by itself but always relies on the blessing of God. And so too, as God blesses his people in their gospel spreading work, the psalmist looks forward to the glorious day of worldwide praise to the Lord. When it says in Psalm 67, 7, let all the ends of the earth fear him. And speaking on this very theme, Jesus pointed out that his great conclusion stems from the smallest of beginnings, which he compared to a tiny mustard seed in Matthew 13, 32, when he said, it is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and become a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, Jesus' point was that his saving grace possesses such expansive power that however small its beginning in a person's life, it holds the potential to change the entire world. That was a testimony of God through the life of Henry Martin, who believed the gospel and realized that hearing the saving, saving message of Christ is everyone's single greatest need. And what is the small beginning that can lead to a great harvest through your life? We might rightly think of a loving witness of Christ to a friend or even a prayer for God to open a door for the gospel. And yet, according to Psalm 67, the small beginning that yields a harvest is a plea for God's glorious face to shine on our own lives. Psalm 67.1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. If you will earnestly pray for God to reveal his glory to your heart through his word, and if you will make your relation with God the top priority in your life, then God through you will make his way known by to many, and many will be brought to his saving power by and through the gospel work in your life. And who can tell what effect this will be in your family, in your workplace, among your friends, in your neighbors, even in distant lands and in future generations, if you will open your heart to the word of God's saving grace. And however your life unfolds, you can be sure of participating in the harvest that is ordained by God to yield eternal fruit under his blessing. If your heart will take up the passionate cause extolled by the psalmist in verses 3 and 5 of the psalm. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. 
And just one final word as we wrap up, my friends. You know, this psalm challenges us not only with our evangelism, but because we live in a time and a day when everybody is obsessed with numbers. How many followers do I have on social media? How many likes am I getting? How much attention am I, are my videos getting? How much? And instead, what the psalmist would say to us, our attention should be on what is most important. It should be on the message. God will bring about fruit, but he does it through means. He does it through the means of his word. We are called to be only faithful to him. We are to be about his praise. And yes, we proclaim Christ out of love for him and out of love for the lost. But guess what? Wherever that is, it's not about how many converts we have. It's not about how many likes on your post. It's not about how many views or how many downloads or how much attention, how many books did I sell. If this psalm is, is, is true, and it is, all of our gospel work should be done for the praise of God and for the good of others. And at the end of the day, that should be our motivation in our evangelism, and it should be our motivation in our discipleship. That in our evangelism, the lost may be one, as Jesus talks about in Luke 19.10, that he came to seek and save the lost. That is the heartbeat of the mission of God. And yet, equally joined with it is Matthew 28.18-20, to make disciples of all the nations. And both are at the heart of God. God desires to see lost people saved so they can become disciples of Christ. So they can make more disciples of Christ for the nations of God. For the glory of God. And the more that you think on and meditate on the glories of Christ in the word, the more that you will desire. If, if you have been born again, you will desire as you reflect on the glories of the grace of God and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you cannot but help to tell other people about Christ. And you can do that. You can do that by going down, yes, to the abortion mill. You can do that by writing. You can do that through podcasting. You can do that through YouTube. You can do that through radio. You can do that by posting on your Facebook. You can do that by posting on your Instagram or whatever social media you use. But above all, even, even more important those things, especially if you're a man, you should be leading your home in a gospel way, in a, in a Christ-honoring way, where the Word of God is central in your home and in your life and in your marriage, if you're married. Because there, there is where your convictions are demonstrated and displayed. And where you are to shepherd your wife, if you have one, and children, if you have them, in, in a way in which they themselves can, if they're not saved, can be brought to Christ. And if they are saved, to be brought to maturity in Christ. And get your family in a local church that preaches the word in season and out of season and points you to Christ from the word so that you might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ because we gather together on the Lord's day and we scatter to go to our various places. 
a, 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 a single mom might go to her job and a, and a married woman with kids uh, is, a, is maybe a homemaker or maybe she goes out in the work or, or if you're a guy, you go out into the workplace, wherever you are, and you go with the gospel of the grace of God. Go with it on your lips and on your heart, not only ready to sh- be ready as 1 Peter 3.15 to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have, but to do so with gentleness and respect because you know that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and he's going to help you. So you should be praying, Lord, help me. Help me as I go out from my local church. Help me to be uh, to speak gently and with respect to other people and to always be ready to give an answer for the reason that, for the hope that I have. Those are the kind of prayers that we should have, be praying. We should be praying, Lord, help me to be humble because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We should be praying for laser-like focus on the mission of God. As we talked about earlier, uh, Luke 19.10 and Matthew 28, we should be praying for laser focus on the mission of God. And we should be praying for how we can strengthen the church because the church is instrument A, God's primary means that he desires to use to reach the lost, to make disciples, all for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that your word is true. And not only is it true, but it, it pierces into, into the heart, into the marrow. Where you see our apathy, you see our pride, you, you see the motivations of our heart. If we're honest, Lord, we are laid bare before you in a message like this. We see our failings to engage the lost. We see our failure to engage our neighbors. We see our failure to make disciples. We, we see our laziness and our sloth and our pride, even in our own homes. And Lord, we, we thank you that even there that you give grace. You give grace upon grace upon grace. We are so thankful, God, for the grace of God. But not only are we thankful for it, but we're thankful that as your children, for those who are in Christ, we can do exactly what Romans 6.11 says. We can, we, we can consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. And what that means is through the empowering work of the Spirit, we can put to sin, put our sin to death because of Christ. And we can put on love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and self-control and all the fruits of the Spirit as you're continuing to progressively grow us in these things, all for your honor and all for your praise. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it's true and that it's living and that it's active and that you are at work. You're, you're shaping us. You're molding us evermore into the image of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And help us, Lord, as we go to share Christ, share the love of Christ and the power of Christ for the glory of Christ, that disciples might be made and the lost may be won. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. 
You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org. 